And now that we might continue to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, let's turn to Philippians chapter 1. Paul the Apostle was arrested in Jerusalem, held in prison in Caesarea for two years, until he appealed to Caesar and was brought as a prisoner to Caesar in Rome in order that he might appear before Caesar and appeal his case. While Paul was in Rome for two years awaiting his appearance before Caesar, he was under house arrest. He was able to rent his own quarters. However, 24 hours a day, he was chained to one of the Roman guards. There were in Rome some 10,000 elite soldiers who had been appointed as the imperial guard and whose chief duty was the protection of the emperor in Rome. One of these men were chained to Paul on shifts 24 hours a day for two years. Paul saw that as a tremendous opportunity to witness. <laughs> they can't get away. And as the result of Paul's witnessing to these men, many of them of Caesar's household were brought to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Quite a revival there in Rome. While Paul was there awaiting his appearance before Caesar, the church in Philippi took up an offering for him and sent him a very generous offering. It was brought to him by Epaphroditus who on the way became extremely ill, almost died. But he brought to Paul this gift from the hearts of those in Philippi and basically this letter that Paul writes to them from the prison in Rome is a letter of thanksgiving and gratitude for the money that they had sent to him by Epaphroditus. And so that really was the occasion of Paul's writing this epistle. It is written not as an apostle to the church as are most of Paul's epistles but it is written as a letter from friend to friend. There's a very warm, friendly feeling through the whole epistle. It is interesting that the tone of the epistle is one of extreme joy and rejoicing. Interesting in the fact that during the time that Paul was doing all of this rejoicing, 
he was chained to a Roman guard in a Roman prison. Some of you have perhaps visit Rome, visited Rome on occasion and were led into the Mamertine prison where tradition says Paul was held. It isn't a very attractive place. It's sort of underground. The light comes in from uh, a window up above. But yet, Paul always had the light within him. And thus, as he declares, I have learned in whatever state I am in to therewith be content. I know how to abound. I know how to be abased. I, I'm content because my contentment does not lie in my circumstances. My contentment lies in my relationship with Jesus Christ. And that cannot change. My circumstances may change. I may be in tough physical circumstances, but my contentment isn't in that. My contentment is in Jesus. And it's important that we also learn to find our contentment in Jesus Christ because then we can learn whatever our condition is to be content. So Paul opens this epistle and along with the little letter to Philemon and 1 Thessalonians, it's the only epistle where he does not begin by the affirmation of his apostleship. Usually it is Paul, an apostle by the will of God. Uh, but he is writing now as friend to friend. And so Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, the word servant here in Greek is douloi, which is bond slave. Now, there was a phrase concerning the bond slaves of Jesus Christ. And that phrase went, to serve him is to reign as king. So, Paul a servant, but yet to serve Jesus is to reign as a king. To be his bond slave. Now, the word douloi, bond slave, is more than just a servant. A servant was a person who was hired, who had the freedom, if he didn't like his job, to quit and find a job someplace else. Not so with a bond slave. Like it or not, you were the property of your owner. The servant could come and go as he pleased, not the bond slave. Bond slavery was something that was for life. Paul the Apostle, the bond slave. Paul and Timothy, bond slaves. To all the saints in Christ Jesus, the word saints has come under a lot of abuse. We've uh, lost the uh, sort of meaning of the word. The word comes from the Greek word hagios, which means holy. And so really he is writing to those who are consecrated. A lot of times you read under the saints, you say, well, it doesn't apply to me. I'm surely no saint. <laughs> but... Uh, it is unto those who are consecrated to Jesus Christ. And so uh, the, the literal meaning of the word saint, holy or consecrated. Unto the saints which are at Philippi with the overseers and workers. I 
go to the Greek words themselves to translate them so that we get them. Again, bishops, we think of, you know, some guy who was over a whole bunch of churches. But they were the overseers within the local church. And uh, the deacons were the workers, those workers within the church. You remember Philippi was the first place Paul came to when he brought the gospel to Europe. He was in Troas. He received a vision of a man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And Paul immediately went down, caught a ship to Macedonia. They came to Philippi and there Paul found a group of women who were worshiping on Saturday out by the river. They were Jews. Now, this means that there was not a large Jewish community in Philippi. For where in a community they had 10 adult Jewish males, they had the obligation to build a synagogue. But if there were not 10 adult Jewish males, then they usually met in an outdoor area, usually by a river, a place of beauty and all. And so the indication is that there were not many Jews in Philippi. And thus meeting by the river, Paul went out and met with the women that were there. And he shared Christ and many of them received. And he started a work there in Philippi. He wasn't able to minister very long because the Jews who found out that the women were converted began to stir up trouble. They had Paul arrested. He was beaten. He was thrown into the dungeon where he and Silas at the midnight hour were singing and praising the Lord when suddenly the prison was shaken by an earthquake and the doors were open and they were freed and the Jailer, realizing that awakening uh, from his sleep and seeing what had happened, took his sword, was ready to kill himself. And Paul said, do yourself no harm. We are all here. You see, under the Roman rule, if you were a guard and your prisoners escaped, then you had to take the penalty of the prisoners. So it better to commit suicide, really, than to face the wrath of the Roman justice, having lost the prisoners that were entrusted to you. And so Paul, the man came in to Paul trembling, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And so he took Paul home, and he washed uh, the cake blood off of his back as the result of the beatings. And he gave him something to eat. And Paul shared with the uh, family. And they all received Jesus Christ and were all baptized. And that was the beginning of the church of Philippi. Now, uh, the magistrates of the city, uh, those that had arrested Paul and responsible for that, they came and they said, let him go, you know, just, uh, we don't have any real charges, so just let him go. And Paul said, hey, wait a minute, I am a Roman citizen, 
And I have been beaten without any charges being filed. There's been an injustice here. And Philippi was one of the main Roman cities. It was supposed to be a model of Roman justice. And so he said, they think they're just going to send me away. Let them come down. Let the mayor come down himself and pardon me, you know, and let me go. And so they went back and they said, did you know that they're Roman citizens? And the guy said, wow, oh no. And he really knew that he had blown it and so he came down he said please would you get out of town just go you know we're sorry go now from that small beginning the spirit of god did a work the church had grown to the place where they had to have overseers they had deacons administrators the work of god had really expanded and they had taken up a generous offering for Paul and sent it to him. And so from that early beginning, God began a good work and he did really perform a very special work there in Philippi. So to the overseers and the workers, grace be unto you and peace. Now we've come across these Siamese twins many times in the New Testament. And they are typical Pauline uh, salutations as he opens his epistle so often with this grace and peace be unto you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I would like to emphasize, and I don't think we can too much, the fact that the Lord is not his name, it's his title. And we should not consider it or think of it as a name. We are talking of relationship when we say the Lord. Jesus is his name. As we were singing, his name is Jesus, Jesus. Sad hearts weep no more. His name is Jesus. Or in the Hebrew, Jehoshua. But... Lord is his title. And if we use the title of Lord, then that does signify that we take the position with Paul as a bond slave. It's talking of relationship from our Lord, Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. So Paul, every time he remembered the work of God there in Philippi, was thanking God for them. John, in writing his epistle, said, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in truth. I think that that can be said of the heart of every minister. The greatest joy that can come to any minister is to know that those who are really the children in the faith as the result of their ministry continue to walk in the truth. Being in the ministry has tremendous reward. And, and it's just thrilling 
to see the work that God does in various areas. This morning, as I was at the back door greeting the people as they were departing, there was a lady with her husband there and their daughter and her husband. And as they approached me, I could see tears just welling up in their eyes. And as they shook my hand, they said, we are from New York. And we listen to your radio program and we have started a Bible study in our home and we listen to your tapes and God is just blessing tremendously. We have so many people that are coming and being blessed through the Word of God. And what a thrill for us to meet you and to be here today as tears just began to strain down their faces. And I'll tell you, if you don't think that's not rewarding... Ooh, to, to just see the fruit of the ministry. How you thank God for the work that He is doing and how you thank God for the privilege of being His instrument through which He might work. And so Paul, God's instrument, is now giving thanks unto God for the report that comes from Philippi of their continuance in the walk and in the faith. Every time he remembered them, he'd say, oh, thank God. And every time I think of you, I just thank God for the work that he is doing by his spirit. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. So he's thanking God, praying for them always. But there's always a certain joyfulness involved with it. Because of the work that God is doing there. And he is thanking God for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now that fellowship, idea of fellowship, the koinonia, is the oneness in the gospel. And no doubt also in this case refers to the support that they had given to Paul through the years. As he was writing to the Galatians, he said that they that are taught in the word ought to communicate unto them that teach in all good things. So the church in Philippi had been faithfully supporting Paul through the years. And so there was that oneness, the sharing. And you remember in the early church, if anyone had anything, they sold it and they brought it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And they had all things in koinonia. This is the same Greek word here. There was just that sharing together of, of the welfare of, of, the, of their resources with Paul and thus fellowship or oneness, a communion in the gospel from the first day that he had been there in Philippi even to the present time. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ, which of course is the day when Christ comes. The day that Christ comes for his church. I'm confident that God is able to just continue the work that he started. Now, a lot of times, unfortunately, we don't have that confidence. 
In the book of Hebrews, Jesus is called the author and the finisher of our faith. And we've got to realize what God has begun, he's going to finish. He's not like us. He doesn't start a lot of projects that he doesn't finish. By virtue of the fact that God has begun a work in my life, I am confident that God is going to complete that work in my life. And Paul said, we're confident of this very thing, that he who has begun the good work in you will continue to perform it until the day that Jesus comes. I have that confidence. There is another scripture that says the Lord will perfect that which concerns you. The word perfect means complete. God's going to complete those things that concern you. He's going to complete that work of His Spirit within your life. He has begun it. He will finish it. He is the author and the finisher. Even as it is necessary for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are partakers of my grace. So, you see the personal nature of this letter. It's really from Paul's heart to them. As he just opens up and bears his heart to them, and again, that oneness that they share together, for they are partakers with Paul of the grace of God. And they are sharing with him who at this time is in bonds, he's in prison because of his defense of the gospel. And so they are sharing with him through these various experiences. For God is my record, how greatly I long for you all in the compassion of Jesus Christ. Paul said that love of Christ constrains me. I long for you with the compassion that Jesus Christ has put in my heart for you. And this I pray that your love may abound more and more in the knowledge and in all judgment. Now Paul said he thanked God for the fellowship that they had together, but he also prayed for them, and this is Paul's prayer, that their love may abound more and more in all knowledge, you know, the, there is a phrase, to know him is to love him. The reason why Jesus said, learn of me, is that he wants you to know how much he loves you. Learn of him. Learn of how much he loves you. Because Jesus knows the more you know him, the more you will know his love for you, and the more you know his love for you, the more response you will have towards that love in your loving Him so that you might abound more and more in that love of Christ as you gain the knowledge of that love. 
and that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. Again, the reference to the coming of Jesus Christ. Now he is able to keep you unto the day that he comes. And this is how Paul wants them to be, growing more and more in their love and in their knowledge, that they might approve or live after those things which are excellent and be sincere. The word sincere, of course, comes from the Latin word sensiri. Uh, two words, actually. Sin without and siri is wax. Now, during the days of Rome, uh, there were a lot of artisans. Everybody who was anybody who could find a hammer and chisel were carving away on marble. And throughout the old world, I mean, you can find all kinds of statues. You go to the museums and just row after row after row of marble statues. And um, it was just something that was very common in those days, the, you know, working in marble. Now, in working in marble, not everyone is perfect, and it might be that you were, you know, trying to shape the nose on the statue that you were making, and you slipped, and you, you popped the nose off the thing. Well, they became extremely clever. They would take sort of the ground marble, mix it with wax, and they could work it out and they could put on a nose out of wax that looked so genuine you couldn't tell it. And so you would go down to the store, you'd see this lovely statue, say, oh, I like that one, I want that in our entry hall, you know. And so you buy this statue and you take it home and put it in your entry hall and then those hot summer days would come and you'd come walking into the house and the nose had melted and run down over the lips, you know. It was wax. So the Latin word sensiri, without wax, <laughs> uh, without phoniness, genuine. <laughs> and that's the way Paul wanted them to be, genuine in their faith. No phoniness to it. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Now the fruit of righteousness is love and joy and peace. Paul wanted them to be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Filled with love, filled with joy, filled with peace. Which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. But I would that you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather to the furtherance of the gospel. Now, they had been following Paul's career. They were aware of his arrest in Jerusalem. They were aware of his imprisonment in uh, Caesarea. The two years as a political pawn. They were aware of 
his appeal to Caesar, and now they were aware of his imprisonment in Rome. And here is a man they highly respected. Here is a man they loved greatly. And to realize that he was really imprisoned on these trumped-up charges, really no basis, it seems like they're sort of a waste of talent. Paul had been so busy in going out and sharing the gospel and now being in prison, it seems like God has made a terrible mistake allowing this warrior of the cross to just be, you know, shut up in prison. And a lot of times we do not understand why God has allowed certain things. And from our viewpoint, God has made here a serious mistake. You ever think that God made some mistakes in your lives? <laughs> Man, there are a lot of things, times that I thought God has surely made a mistake now. My circumstances, my conditions, surely this is a mistake. But Paul is assuring them now what things have happened have really, God has been using them for the furtherance of the gospel. It is marvelous to be able to see the hand of God even in those places where I am at a personal disadvantage. Things that I would not personally choose for myself. To always realize that God probably has His hand in this. The other day, Saturday, I started out of the house to come out here to the church. And suddenly, I thought, oh, I've forgotten my glasses. So I went back into my back into the house to get my glasses. And I didn't see them on the counter and then I realized they were in my pocket. It's what they call senility. <laughs> it comes with old age. And I said, "Oh, you know, here I am, late, and it's dumb, stupid, you know. But then, as I was going back out to the car, the thought came to me, I wonder if the Lord was sparing me from an accident. You know, accidents happen with such precision, split-second timing, that just a moment's delay at this point could very well be protecting you from some accident down the road. And so, you know, I just sort of said, well, thank you, Lord. You know things that I don't know. And you're watching over even your dumb little sheep. <laughs> and you're taking care of those that don't have enough sense to take care of themselves. And so whatever it was, whatever purpose, thanks, Lord, appreciate your watching over me. Now, it is important and it is good to realize 
that whatever happens to me is happening for a good purpose. God has a plan in mind for my life. So that Paul, as he said to the Roman church, all things work together for good to those who love God. Paul is seeing here the good that God is bringing forth from his imprisonment. And so he is wanting to encourage them who would be prone to question God or doubt God because this marvelous apostle is being wasted in prison. He is assuring them that God's hand and purposes are being accomplished by his imprisonment. So I want you to know that these things that have happened to me have really happened for the furtherance of the gospel. When Paul was being brought to Rome, went through that tremendous storm for over 14 days there in the Mediterranean. He had warned the captain not to set sail. He said, I perceive, you know, real danger is going to come to us. But the captain told the Roman centurion, hey, you know, what's that guy know about the seas? I'm a captain. I've, you know, been on these seas all my life, you know, and he's a landlubber. He doesn't know anything. We can sail, you know. So the centurion said, okay, sail. And then they got into that horrible storm where for 14 days they did not see the sun or stars. The ship was tossed to and fro in the Mediterranean. The mast was broken. The, uh, they had thrown out all of their cargo. They would just really place themselves at, finally at the mercies of the sea. Everyone was seasick and miserable. And after 14 days of this, Paul stood up and said, I told you, you shouldn't have started out. <laughs> I love those people. <laughs> but he said, be of good cheer. The angel of the Lord stood by me last night and told me that though the ship will be wrecked and destroyed, all of the lives will be saved. Well, the Lord wanted to reach the governor of the island of Malta. And that was just an unusual way of getting Paul to Malta. It wasn't on their planned journey. <laughs> so God detoured them uh, to Malta. There was no way Paul could have talked the captain into going to Malta. But the Lord had souls on Malta that he wanted to reach. And so Paul had really a great experience witnessing to the natives. And a real revival started. And I'm sure a continuing work of God there on the island of Malta as a result of Paul's visit. Now, this imprisonment brought from Malta onto Puteoli on into Rome now in prison. But it's all happening for the furtherance of the gospel. So that my bonds in Christ are manifested in all of the palace or the praetorium and in all other places. Now the palace would have been Nero's palace there in Rome. And as we read in other accounts, many of Nero's servants came to know Jesus Christ. And many of the brethren in the Lord 
waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. They, they see how Paul's testimony is so fearless, how Paul is leading so many of these imperial guards to Jesus Christ. And the boldness of Paul's witness and all emboldened many of them to also begin to really witness for the Lord and to witness boldly for the Lord. So Paul said, it's all happening for good. It's all working out. God is working in this whole thing. And my imprisonment and my experiences really are furthering the work of the gospel. Now, he said, there are indeed some who preach Christ even out of envy and strife, and some of goodwill. The one is preaching Christ out of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. Paul, because he was a dynamic leader and a strong leader, had his enemies as well as his friends. That's the price of leadership. Just the very fact that God is using you is going to create enmity, jealousy, animosity in, in the hearts of people. And Paul was no exception. There were those who were jealous of Paul's ministry and what God was doing through Paul. And they thought to take advantage of the fact that he's in bonds. And, you know, they're going to go out and they're going to try and do their work and all. Out of contention, their motive was contention, rivalry, rivalry against Paul, building up their own little flock or whatever. So their motives were really wrong in what they were doing. But the very fact that they were doing it, Paul rejoiced. And I think that this is just a tremendous example of the true Christian minister. He doesn't care who is getting the credit. All he cares is that the work of Christ is being accomplished. You know, so God is blessing the Baptist church and it's bursting its seams. Praise the Lord. The Spirit of God is moving in the hearts of those people. And rather than feeling jealous or competitive, rather than saying, well, I don't know why God would bless them when we're so much better than they are, you know. You rejoice that God is working and that the work of God is being accomplished. And even if a person comes in with wrong motivation, they say, I don't like that Chuck Smith. I'm bitter at him. I'm going to rip off a part of his flock, you know. We're going to establish our ministry right down the block. And we'll pick up all the disgruntleds and everyone else that comes out of there, you know. Hey, praise the Lord, the people are being ministered to. They're disgruntled with me. They won't come here anymore. Well, bless God, there's a place for the disgruntleds to meet. <laughs> Christ is being preached. The motive may not be right within their hearts, but that doesn't matter. Paul said to me, I'm thrilled 
that the work of God is spreading in this, in this community. And so some of them, wrong motives, contention, really trying to add to Paul's affliction, but then the others, true motives of love, they realize that I have been put in this position to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. What then? Notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and therein I do rejoice and will rejoice. So beautiful, so beautiful. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. At this point, Paul was facing Caesar Nero, and he really did not know whether or not he would receive the sentence of death from Nero. Now, he knew that Nero had a general opposition to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knew that Nero saw Jesus Christ as a threat. Nero had ordered that the people confess that Caesar is Lord. And those that would refuse to confess that Caesar is Lord would be put to death. Paul is going to be facing now this little tyrant. He says, pray for me that I might be as bold as I've always been. <laughs> Not going to back down in this situation just because I'm going to be facing this tyrant Caesar. My expectation, my hope that I'll not be ashamed, but I'll speak the truth boldly, though the consequence may be my head. It is interesting from a historic standpoint that Paul appeared before Caesar Nero twice. Once on his appeal in Caesarea, brought and appealed before, uh, had appealed to Caesar, and the first time Paul appeared, Caesar Nero set him free. The charges were baseless, and Paul was set free. A couple of years later, he was rearrested brought back to Rome, and Caesar Nero ordered him beheaded. And so Paul died a martyr's death. He was beheaded by the edict of Caesar Nero. But as you look at history, an interesting thing. Number one, we know that Jesus had told his disciples that they were going to be hailed before the magistrates and before kings. 
But he said, don't take any forethought what you're going to say, for in that hour the Holy Spirit will give you the words, and these things will turn for your testimony, or the appearances will give you an opportunity to testify. And so as you read Paul's defenses before the judges and before the kings, he appeared before King Agrippa, he appeared before Felix, and then before Festus. And on every occasion, Paul took the occasion to testify, to tell of the work of God's Spirit of his, in his life, and of his, he witnessed of his being born again by the power of Jesus Christ. And every time that he appeared before any of these magistrates or whatever, it was just to Paul an opportunity to testify for Jesus Christ. And the higher the position of the person before whom Paul was appearing, the more fervent was Paul's testimony, the more earnest was Paul in his endeavor to convert the person because Paul always thought, wow, with the influence and position this guy has, think of what it could do for the gospel if he were saved. So when he appeared before King Agrippa, Man, did he ever lay on a heavy testimony. And he was coming to the close. He said, Agrippa, do you believe the Scriptures? I know you believe the Scriptures. And he was really coming in the close. And old Festus cried out and said, Paul, you're crazy. You've, you've been studying too hard. You've lost your mind. And Paul came right back and began to press Agrippa. Until he said, oh, wait a minute. You mean you're trying to convert me to be a Christian? You're trying to persuade me? Paul said, hey, I sure wish you were. Just like me, except I wouldn't wish you to have these bonds on you, but oh, how I wish you were. Now, Paul appearing before Nero, don't you know he really turned it on? I mean, he felt, no doubt, if I can convert Nero, think of what that will do for the gospel, you know, if the, if the emperor becomes a Christian. And I'm sure that he laid on the heaviest witness anybody has ever heard at any time in history when he got before Nero. It is interesting as you study the history of Nero up until this point in history, up until the point that Paul appeared before him. He was a fairly decent ruler. But after Paul's appearance, there was a sudden and dramatic change in Nero's personality. Recorded in history. And he became almost a madman. In fact, many did think that he went insane. There is that likelihood that God, through Paul, was giving to Caesar Nero the opportunity of being saved. And the testimony and the witness was so powerful that in his rejection of that testimony, 
His complete rejection of Jesus Christ that Caesar Nero at that point became demon-possessed. And there are certainly things in history to indicate demon possession in Caesar Nero and also in scriptures. And Caesar Nero became a madman. In his, per in his persecution of the church, he became inhumane. They would tie Christians on post in his garden, cover them with tar, and set them on fire to light his garden in the evening as he would get in his chariot naked and race through the paths of his garden. Christians lighting them torched there in the garden. Inhumane, horrible. It's an interesting study as you study carefully the history of Nero and this dramatic change just about the time that Paul had witnessed to him. He then, of course, burned Rome in his desire to build a new and greater Rome, one that would be named after him and leave his monument and then blame the Christians. And that was when Paul was recalled and arrested in Ephesus and brought back to Rome and then beheaded by Caesar Nero. Now, whether or not Paul was writing during the first imprisonment or second is not known for certain, probably the first. But even at this point, his outcome is uncertain. So Paul expresses, hey, my desire is that Christ be magnified in my body. Whether by life or by death, I really don't care. I just want to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. God forbid, he wrote, that I should glory except in the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm not looking for anything for myself. All I'm looking is that my life will bring glory and honor to Christ. That Christ be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Doesn't make any difference. For to me, to live is Christ. He's the center of my existence. My life revolves around him. Again, if you were to say to me to live, what would you have to say? To me to live is the Indy 500. To me to live is playing a guitar. To me to live is, and so many people are living for so many different things. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. But because he said, for me to live is Christ, he can also say, to die is gain. And you can't say that if you are living for anything else. To me to live is to be wealthy, to amass a fortune. To die is to lose it all. To die is loss. You can only say, to die is gain, 
when you've lived your life for Jesus Christ. And that is why if a person lives their life for Jesus Christ, we don't have to and we should not grieve over their deaths. We can grieve over our loss. We sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. We sorrow because we're going to miss them, but we don't sorrow for them. We don't grieve for them. For if a person is living for Christ, to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, I really don't know what's going to happen now. This is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose, I really don't know. If you ask me, what would you choose, Paul? Do you want to live or die? I really don't know. For, he said, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Now, if soul sleep was a legitimate doctrine, then Paul the Apostle surely did not understand the doctrine. Because he would not then express himself this way concerning death. I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be asleep. Awaiting the great day of the Lord. No, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ. Paul's understanding that death would free his spirit from his body that his spirit might immediately be with the Lord in heaven. In writing his second letter to the Corinthians, he said, For we know that when this tent, the earthly body in which we presently live, is dissolved, that we have a building of God that is not made with hands, that is eternal in the heavens, so then, we who are still living in these bodies do often groan, earnestly desiring to be freed from them, not that I would be an unembodied spirit, not that I would be unclothed, but that I might be clothed upon with the body which is from heaven. For we know that as long as we are living in these bodies, we are absent from the Lord. So we would choose rather to be absent from these bodies and to be present with the Lord, consistent with what he is saying here to the Philippians. For I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. So I really don't know what to choose. I'm really in, I'm really in a strait. I, 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 you know, I'm facing life or death. I don't know. But I, I don't really know what I want. Because there is a desire. We are in this body's grown, earnestly desiring to be freed from the bodies. Not to be unembodied, but to be clothed upon with the body which is from heaven. So we in these bodies groaning, earnestly desiring. So I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ which is far better. Now, do you really believe that? You see, we have the wrong attitude towards death. 
Oh my, what a shame, what a pity that he should die. Oh, how terrible, what a loss. <laughs> you just don't understand what death is for the child of God. But Paul said, for me to continue to stay in this body of flesh is more needful for you. You need me. Now, I'd like to go. My desire is to go and to be with Christ, but you need me. So I'm torn. I'm torn by your need of my continued ministry and by my desire to be with the Lord. And I think that that is always true. We are, we are sort of in a straight betwixt two. When we think of the Lord and being with Him in heaven and all, we, oh man, you know, I love to be with the Lord. But yet we look at our family and they still need us and, and uh, the responsibilities and all and around and we go, oh, you know, well, they still need me, you know. And so there is that torn feeling. Now I have this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you for the furtherance of the joy and your faith. So Paul was confident at this point that he was going to be exonerated, which he was, and, and to continue for a little while yet with them. That your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my ability to come to you again. So let your manner of life be as becomes the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, you know, if he takes my head, that I may, well, no, not that he takes my head, because if, that I may hear of your affairs, and of course he won't if they take his head, that ye stand fast in one spirit, now, whether I stay in jail, actually, that when I hear of you, that this is what I'll hear, that you're standing fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so the desire for the church, one faith, one mind, working together for the faith of the gospel. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which to them is an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Wait a minute. I thought I heard an evangelist the other night saying that no Christian ever needed to suffer if he just had enough faith. <laughs> Evidently he didn't read Philippians 1. It is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me.